When on the hunt for a new apartment, we obviously all have things that are kind of non-negotiables for us. I would say for me, top of that list is probably natural light. Just because I know myself, I know I'm more productive throughout the day. I'm honestly just happier throughout the day when I'm getting a lot of natural light. And it's important to know what you want and then really to be able to get that. You know, this is your space that you're living in. So apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all your specific unique boxes. So first of all, they have 3D virtual tours. So when you can't be there in person, you can take a tour of your possible future home, which is huge because it's one thing for someone to send you photos or to tell you about it, but really to be able to do kind of a virtual walkthrough to me is huge. Also, apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet, and they have amenity filters, so you can make sure your possible future home has all the amenities you need, whether that's in-unit washer-dryer, air conditioning, dishwasher, balcony. For me, in my next place, in-unit washer-dryer is like hands down, very, very high. So visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hi guys, I'm Emma. And I'm Isabel. And welcome to another episode of Comments by Bravo. Hey, Is. Hi, Em. I have a lot of energy tonight. I'm really excited for this episode. I was about to say I am energized because I feel like we have so much ground to cover. So much ground to cover, so many different cities and stories, and it's going to be a good one. (laughs) We dropped the episode last week a little bit earlier than normal, (laughs) and no joke, two hours later, the Salt Lake City trailer drops. This always happens. We get our episode done, we're like, great, everyone's going to be so happy, we have the recaps up early, we're done for the day, and then something happens, whether it's Rihanna and Nicki Minaj, then Salt Lake City, I'm not kidding, if the podcast went up at 2 30 235, the Salt Lake City trailer dropped. When Heather says, How did the feds know you were a beauty lab? I thought I was going to drop dead. When they end the trailer with Jen Shaw saying, Do we need to add Kim Kardashian to our legal team? No. No. That, that is why, though, let's just get right into it. I'll tell you guys in a second how we're going to do the episode, but let me just make this one point first. That is why. I think the public has taken issue with Jen Shaw because to a certain extent, like, yes, we like that over the top energy. Give it to us. It makes a good housewife. However, to your point that you made months ago when, you know, Salt Lake City was on the air, she's too calculated. And you know that she's saying things purposely for sound bites that especially in a case like this, when what they're talking about is such serious matter, it's very similar to the Erica conversation we had last week about like, it would be so fine if you wanted to go on this lighthearted social media slander about your husband's mistress, if that was it. But we're talking about deep, heavy shit here. You can't play both sides. No, totally. And I also think she kind of set the tone for this whole thing when the day after all this came out and she was arrested and brought to court and all the charges were pressed, she was reposting all these photos of herself getting glam and videos and writing hashtag free Jen and like reposting all these things. And that kind of set the tone that it wasn't as serious or she wasn't taking it as seriously as she maybe should be or we thought she should be. Listen, we don't know the full story. And by the way, you're so right. She knows that that Kim Kardashian thing is going to get clipped. I mean, people, and by people, I mean me because it was the first thing I posted go crazy for that kind of stuff. But it's the calculation behind it of knowing what will make a good gif and what people will cling on to that just rubs me the wrong way. Her thing is just rooted in no sort of natural rhythm. The thing is, her quote natural thing about her is her temper and sort of the way she 
reacts to things and handles situations. So I believe a lot of that is authentic. Maybe it goes over the top or maybe it's exaggerated, but I do feel like that is really who she is at her core. But then these other little things, I I think it's a universal housewives problem, but something about her specifically, I just can always tell. Yeah. I mean, this trailer was packed to the absolute brim because of course we got the moment we were all waiting for where all of the other women were confronting these rumors and these allegations that we had been speaking about so much. And of course, we wanted to see that moment. But the one specific blow up between her and Meredith was so interesting to me because I did not see that coming. Like It was not on my bingo card for Whitney to accuse Meredith of potentially conspiring with police to get Jen arrested. That was some other shit. And- the way the trailer made it look was that the catalyst for Meredith being so pissed at Jen still kind of following up from last season is the way she's been treating Brooks and liking all of these terrible tweets about him. Now, I don't think it was like, oh, she's liking these tweets about Brooks. Uh, You know, I'm going to call the feds. I don't believe that's true. And I think there's a lot more in the middle that kind of got them to this point where they would accuse her of that. But then also this whole plot line of Lisa Barlow being this deep investigator into Mary and her church. Like maybe they thought that was going to be the big plot line and this whole secret revealed and like they're going to catch her. And then the Jen stuff happened and they probably had to put that on the back burner. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, by the way, if you're Mary, talk about an edible arrangement that needed to be sent. She's probably <laughs> kissing the crown Jen walks on because what a distraction. Right, exactly. So I kind of love when things go one way and then they take a turn. I mean, even this season of Beverly Hills, everything went a completely different direction than they had gone into the season thinking. I think the producers sometimes have a little bit of an outline of where everyone stands, what could potentially happen, and the life events going on. But then mid-filming, when things do a 180, it's like, okay, this is when you're glad that the cameras are rolling. Well, yeah, because the producers can have a handle on drama within the group or potentially family matters. You know, they sit down with every housewife before every season to kind of get a sense as to what's going on in their own life. However, when a legal issue like this comes out of left field, it's not like the FBI is sitting down the Bravo producers and are like, by the way, get your cameras ready for this day. So when they happen to be filming, they just have to run with it. And that's what we're seeing here. And I mean, I knew that this was going to blow up because there was no way that Jen was going to be undergoing the pressure she's under and then also not take it out on the women because she's been taking things out on the women even when there was nothing serious going on in her life. But I just wasn't expecting the blow up with Meredith. And then when she used the word fraudulent, I just knew that was going to be the soundbite heard around the world. Meredith really blew me away. I love her so much, but I think she really turned the dial up on like the disengaging element that she had last season and she's kind of leaned into it. And I think she's not found her voice, but she was a little bit more subdued and almost didn't want to get involved in things. But from the looks of the trailer, I feel like she's going to literally bring her A game. I think so too. You know what else I was wondering? Do you think that Stuart will be filmed at all? If he knows it's good for him, he won't. Jen's a little assistant who I guess was like her co-conspirator. I mean, (laughs) clearly he does not know what's good for him if he is, again, this is all alleged, but as involved with Jen as he seemingly is. Well, I'm sure he maybe regrets trying to like become a little side character in her storyline because now we know who he is, you know? Like that's almost worse now that we have a face and we have a persona to match to it instead of just reading, oh, one of her assistants was also involved. Now it's like, no, he was literally 
sort of part of the show and part of the show that she was trying to really make happen. I'm very curious to see the Sharif part of it all. I really am. Yes, same. And when she's crying about leaving her sons for that long and like the reality of what this could look like, I I can't wait to hear what he says because this is the kind of thing where we want to know how are the family and friends reacting and what is their take and how will they portray that on camera when their loved one is with them. I know you can't compare the two. They are two very different situations, but just for one second, I want to compare Erica and Jen in the sense that in this situation with Jen and Sharif, Jen is the one that's being accused. And in the one with Erica and Tom, at this moment in time, when this was being filmed, Tom was the one that was directly accused and Erica was kind of involved in it, but not as direct. But the real difference is that we are getting, even if it's you know, very performative potentially, we are getting the conversations between Jen and Sharif filmed and Jen and the kids. Whereas we're not getting Erica and Tom conversations. That is the piece that with Erica, we are completely lost on. And so getting that kind of peek into Jen's household, wow. Right. Like we're never going to see Tom Girardi again. Ever. So ever. So it's almost like what if he had been the main cast member on the show? And even if we don't get to see like the nitty gritty details and maybe we only get to see a little bit of a more curated part of the story from Jen's perspective, at least we get to see her. We see her reaction. We'll get to see her mannerisms. We'll see the way that she's directing it and taking it. And I'm sure we'll we'll be able to feel the emotional toll it's taking on her and also see how everyone around her is coping. Again, we are obsessed with seeing the women react and I don't know if the actual moment that they all found out is filmed, but again, we're going to get, holy shit, did you hear this? Did you see this? What is going on? We were just with her, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Guys, I'm really excited for Salt Lake City. Honestly, out of any franchise, that's the one I'm the most excited to have a podcast for because like I said last week, we had the podcast when it started, so it just feels right. And I feel like for you and I, it's like a special bonding thing. (laughs) Oh my God. Thank God. We're not close enough. (laughs) (laughs) Also, we didn't talk about Jenny Wynn. I like her already. I'm telling you, it's it's a little totally different, but just hear me out for a second. Don't you kind of understand the similarities that are being drawn between her and Mia in terms of the initial presence that they are portraying just early preview? Yes. And that we're already going to get a little bit of her like family life drama mm-hmm. and like a very kind of layered individual storyline, which I really appreciate. And also like you can just tell that she's not afraid of this group and isn't trying to like I don't know, get their approval for anything. Like you could tell she's really just diving right in. So I I can't say I was hoping for a new housewife because I thought the cast was so perfect as is. But especially given what's going on this season, I feel like having a new woman in the mix to kind of shake up the dynamics and maybe have them see things from a different perspective is going to be really helpful. Oh yeah. Listen, I don't care who came along as long as nobody was cut and nobody was cut, thank God. Yes, exactly. So I welcome her with open arms. Oh, I can't wait. And I I love Bravo and Housewives Twitter more than anything, but something about it during Salt Lake City just kills me because we all just have the same inside jokes about it because we're all in the exact same place. It's not like people who have been viewing Bravo for – a hundred years versus people who just started. It's like, no, we are literally all on the same page, whether you're an expert or a beginner. Yeah. You don't have to have any background knowledge, which is so rare in Bravo. Right. And like everyone gets all the jokes and I just love the camaraderie. (laughs) 
We love the camaraderie. We're obsessed with Twitter camaraderie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's our favorite thing. Ever. Also, as I'm sure you all are aware by now, the news came out that Bravo has no plans for Real Housewives of Dallas to return to TV next year. And to that, I just want to say I am entirely apathetic. I'm relieved. It makes our jobs a lot easier because it was just a little bit painful to have to watch and talk about. And I think Bravo is learning that we'd rather not have the show anymore than have a really shitty, problematic, disturbing, cringy version of a show that we once loved. And you know what? Sometimes you got to just let it go. And this, I feel, was the right move. I think it could have been saved. I saw photos from Tiffany's birthday party with Deandra and some of the other women that were like potentially being tossed around to be new housewives. But there's just a certain point where the show doesn't even resemble what it used to be or why we love it. And that's just when you have to cut ties. Okay. So as much as I wholeheartedly agree with your entire statement, in case there are any Bravo execs listening, we do not hold that same energy for New York because as cringy and painful as this season has been, we do want it to come back. We just really need to fix some things. Well, there's a difference, I guess, between the nostalgia of New York and also that it is fixable. As bad as it is, I do see a world in which it could be better. Whereas Dallas, like there was no world. Like there weren't even OGs or good housewives keeping it rooted and grounded. And like, yeah, a full cast shakeup is great, but then there's sort of no reason. Everyone was saying though, like we need a Married to Medicine Dallas starring Tiffany Moon because she's such a great TV presence and everyone sort of fell in love with her and now we have her ripped away. So I just hope in some way she gets brought back. I I agree. I mean, I don't know if it would be Married to Medicine Dallas. However, you see that she puts a lot of energy into TikTok and just in general kind of in her like media endeavors. So as much as I think that she was probably relieved to not have to do another season with these women because it was always kind of, you know, back and forth of whether or not she was going to, I do believe that there's a part of her that would want to come back to television. So I'm hopeful that that is, you know, pretty a feasible possibility. The Dallas women all posted tributes on Instagram. I don't know. It just feels like the right time. It does. I can't I can't even fake any sort of emotion around it. Personally, you and I Listen, midway through the podcast, we just stopped recapping it because we were like, everybody is hating watching this. What is what is enjoyable about it? I think it? we literally stopped and no one said anything. <laughs> we got like maybe three DMs. I swear to God. Being like, wait, is my podcast app broken or did you guys not recap Dallas this week? And we're like, no, we just didn't. And then nobody ever said anything ever again. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anything else you'd like to mention or shall we get into Beverly Hills? Let's get into Beverly Hills. I feel like makeup in general and specifically a daily makeup routine is so personal and that we've all kind of gotten down to a science, what works for us, what we need before we leave the house, like where do we feel our most comfortable? And for me on a daily basis, I wear really, really minimal makeup. I actually think I feel the most comfortable with the least amount of makeup, but my two Holy Grail products always have been, I think always will be our mascara and lip gloss, maybe a little highlight on the inner corner if I'm feeling crazy, but Honestly, whether you are fresh face, full glam, wherever you fall, you have probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. It's the one in that turquoise tube that you see all over social media. So Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. 
They have a lot of great products, but the one I want to focus on is the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. First of all, it lasts all day without clumping, smudging, or flaking, which I'm telling you right now, I have a zero tolerance policy for flaking with my mascara. Like I'm just not trying to put you on my lashes if you're going to flake. And they have a flake-free tubing formula that dramatically lengthens and defines your lashes from root to tip. So it kind of looks like lash extensions without the damaging glue or salon prices. Also super easy removal, slides right off with warm water and a washcloth, no soap required. And it has nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. It's just like very much worth the hype. I had seen it a lot. And once I tried it, I was like, oh, okay, this is why I see it everywhere. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com CBC. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash CBC for 20% off your first order. Last episode was definitely hard to top. However, personally, in my opinion, this one was right on par. It was so captivating. Every minute we were getting something new and they are like really actually truly not holding back like they are delivering what they promised they would and we're not tiptoeing around things and it's not just alluding to things they're full front giving it to us yeah and you know the other thing which i know there's so much we have to get into here but i'm realizing that there's a lot of stuff that's not even verbal necessarily that we can pick up from for example erica driving to kyle's house tonight yes in her range rover but still that has maybe never been done before on a beverly hills episode every single time even if they are going down the block they are being driven and so something as small as that which maybe would not even be in our focus in another city is so telling of where she's at you know what i mean of course and also just the nonverbal cues that they're giving each other at Dorit's house when they're having this conversation, the looks that Garcelle is giving to Sutton and the way that like all of them just are acting, it's so different than if you had only read what they were saying versus watching them and how the conversations go down and almost how everyone's trying to feel out, okay, who else in this room feels the same way as me and who else in this room feels the same way I feel about what everyone else is saying? Like They're all sort of dancing around it and trying to figure out where everybody stands. Right. And then the third layer to both of those things, which we see a lot at Kyle's is like, okay, and who here is willing to say what they think in front of Erica? Because the way that we evaluate everybody's behavior at Dorit's, that's one conversation. And then conversation number two, probably the more interesting one is everybody's behavior once Erica's in the room, because everybody's a tough guy until she's present. Oh my God. It was like two different it was like two different groups, honestly. It was like if you had two different focus groups come in to talk about it and A said one thing and B said another. That's re- I felt like I was watching two different things. The only thing I will say is the progression of Kyle from that conversation that they flashed back to when it was just Erica and Kyle at the hike versus where we've landed now, I think is one of the really most interesting like arcs of figuring it out and understanding that we have in the group. Yes. And I know that we will get into this later, but I just want to say the one line that Kyle said to Garcelle when she says, greed can bring out the worst in people was not only chilling, but also goes directly to what you were just saying of, even though I think she's trying to downplay it, you can see as the audience that her wheels are turning. Oh, absolutely. And I think it was a little bit unexpected, but To me, it falls most in line with what I've been thinking and the way that I'm kind of taking it in. 
Oh, very much so. I mean, I think that what's happening here, just like general big picture, is that obviously Inquisition is a natural part of this entire process. However, I think those that feel the closest to Erica feel the guiltiest for even having any sources of curiosity. That's what I think it is. I think that they feel that they are expected to operate with blind loyalty. However, when somebody like Sutton is coming in and being such a direct question asker, that is appealing. And all of a sudden that becomes exciting. And that's actually more that where they want to be, but I think they're really struggling with it. And you see it the most with Kyle and Dorit because Rinna isn't really playing into it. She may have a million questions, but she's not going to lean in. Whereas Kyle and Dorit are a little bit stuck and we'll get into Dorit's behavior, but it's, it's really interesting how Sutton's presence is changing this because I have to say without Sutton there, I don't know if these conversations would go down in the way that they're going down. They needed, like we said last week, they needed permission to be curious. Especially after what Garcelle went through, you know, maybe if that hadn't happened in Palm Springs, she would have been a little bit more open to asking questions, but I think she was kind of scarred from what happened. Ironically, I think what Dorit said at her house is what sums it up the best, which is we have to be able and the public has to be able to separate our support of Erica as her friend from our support of what allegedly could have gone down and sort of the legal side of it. And I think to me that makes the most sense and that's really what they're grappling with here. Also, we could put the women on a sliding scale. I think Rinna is really on one end of the spectrum. Sutton's on the other. I think Garcelle is very close to where Sutton is. And Kyle and Dorit sort of fall somewhere in the middle. And day by day, those positions are ever-changing. They're ever-changing, and we are being witness to their changing in real time, and that's what's so unique about watching this. That's really what it is. Yeah. So when they're at Dorit's house, and they're continuing the conversation from last week, and Sutton is saying she doesn't want her name associated, and this is when Rinna asks her, how would that affect you? Sutton's response, and I quote, it does. People are like, oh, she's friends with that person, and she's talking about all of the philanthropy boards she's on, et cetera. Rinna says, I don't care about that. What if she's innocent? And Sutton's response is, well, then I'm eating crow pie. So- Two important things that happened here was Sutton making the clarification that it's not only the potential legalities that she's concerned about, it's also just being very transparent here, a little bit of a reputation thing. And when we finished Beverly Hills, when we were waiting to record tonight, I was watching a little bit of chat room and Giselle made a point to Portia of like, what Sutton couldn't say because she couldn't break the fourth wall is that her association comes from being a cast member. Right. And that was what she obviously wanted to say out loud and couldn't. And so I feel like if we're going to talk about this conversation, we have to add in that context, which I'm sure everybody else also thought, but that was really the missing piece that they couldn't acknowledge. Yeah. I was thinking that the most when it later comes up when Sutton says, the mistress thing is beneath all of us. And Yes, it is associating with someone, quote, like that in a friend group and someone who's posting things like that and kind of has this drama following them. But you're right. The elephant in the room, or Portia and Giselle are right. The elephant in the room is, I don't want to be on a show where this is the narrative and this is the kind of gossip and storylines and where is the trajectory of the show going if this is the sort of topics and content that are being covered. This is not what I signed up for. And you are what the show is. So I I got it. And I think reputation could be skewed when you're not thinking about the show as her just being selfish and caring about her socialite status in Beverly Hills. But it really is about her celebrity and her persona. No, it totally is. And by the way, you know, just to really see all sides of this, I can understand people that think that that 
comes across as selfish. I don't think it's the craziest thing. However, I also, if I'm being honest, understood where she was coming from. I do too. And I think her mistake here was she should have led with the legal part because to me that makes the most sense and that's the most universally sort of accepted is that your first call, if you're worried, is could I in any way be brought into this legally? Because Erica is telling us all these stories on and off the quote record on camera. And, you know, I'm going over to her house and I'm engaging with her. I'm going on trips with her. Really, worst case scenario, what could that do to me? I think that's completely fair. As much as it hurt Erica's feelings, and I think she was trying to play it off of like, I'm not even being blamed for anything. So what does this have to do with you? Like your first thought is you, but when it's your life, yeah, that is your first thought. There's nothing you can do for Erica. I think Sutton bringing the whole reputation part into it was not a mistake, but it sort of overtook the legal part, which I think makes the most logical sense to more people than the reputation does. Well, she was just being, you know, brutally honest, which I appreciated. And, you know, yeah. I know we're kind of going out of order here, which is fine because we're just talking about it. But when they're at the dinner table and Erica basically finds out what you were just saying, you know, that they, some of them have consulted their lawyers just to get a general sense of advice. And like you said, you know, yes, she was a little bit hurt by that. And she kind of wants to make it out of like, how could you even think there's any possibility here? To me, it's not that I didn't understand where she was coming from. I did. You know, that could be a little bit hurtful totally. It's like, are you kidding? It's my fucking life and you're worried about you. However, Erica, you got yourself into this mess by being so extremely ignorant. So, hey, maybe they're taking a lesson from you. Why not lead with wanting to get all of the information they can possibly gather? It's like there was a disconnect there because obviously it became emotional and it became personalized and I get it. However, if we want to look at you know, take the situation and say, what did we learn? Oh my God, not leading with ignorance and trying to consult your lawyers from the jump is the smartest thing to do. It's the one thing they could learn from her. Right. And maybe she has a little bit of like bitter feelings towards that of being like, oh, well, you're doing the smart thing. So, you know, I wish I could turn back time and do that. Again, going out of order, but this just stuck out to me is back to the sudden thing. I think the problem was Sutton wasn't trying to bring that up as a point of concern for Erica to now deal with. Sutton was being this whole episode so fucking honest, like truly the most honest we've seen anyone where they have a meeting, they have conversations, and every single thing, pretty much verbatim, that she said in that meeting without Erica, she was willing to keep her word and say it in front of Erica and say it to Erica but it gets a little bit misconstrued when you're recapping all the points and now you're bringing up this whole reputation thing and Erica's like, you think that's what I fucking care about? But no, she was just really going down the bulleted list of here's what was covered at our sort of group meeting without you and you should be privy to all that information because you just should and I and I want to keep my word. Right. And at the very least, whether you agree with Sutton or not, you can appreciate her consistency because I think this is a natural transition. Let us go into the dinner, shall we? Yeah. First things first, when we find out that Teddy is going to be there and Garcelle's in her confessional and the producer asks her, what's the deal? And her response, and I quote, I don't know, she's kind of annoying, like a little gnat. <laughs> Garcelle is so fucking funny. And I literally could hear everyone clicking away on Twitter to praise her because everyone just doesn't like Teddy. And I know this is such an unpopular opinion and I don't love her, but I don't hate her. Like she doesn't annoy me enough that I, I get 
why everyone hates her so much, but I just knew that that is the popular opinion and Garcelle is just voicing what the crowds and the people want to hear. Oh, I thought it was hysterical because I actually thought that her point was probably more on par with my feeling of like, Teddy's not this bad person. She's not evil. She's just like a little bit annoying. Yeah. Like if you had a fly swatter, I don't know. know? Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. And I also think in this particular situation, she probably felt even more annoying because she's stepping into a situation that she's not familiar with. She hasn't been along for the ride. She's totally uninvolved with. She's not on the show anymore. And she doesn't know the sort of details and logistics of going on behind the scenes. If not only the night before or whatever they met, she doesn't know any of it. So it's like now to be giving her two cents and sort of just sitting there taking it all in and maybe to interject her opinion, it's like, okay, we don't want to hear from anybody who doesn't really know the whole scoop. Right. Because also one can assume that everything she's hearing is completely filtered through Kyle's lens, which is fine. I mean, I wouldn't say that out of the entire group, Kyle is definitely not the most biased towards Erica, but I think that can also breed additional frustration just for the viewer. Right. And Erica is definitely sitting there knowing anything Teddy knows is from Kyle and also probably a little uncomfortable. Like, here's this girl I haven't seen in so long. And now the first dinner back, she's watching my full interrogation. Right. However, the irony of all this is that she ends up supporting her. Right. That's true. One other lighthearted moment, because we're about to really get into the mud here, when Kathy says, I'm going to have a gorilla, and the editors cut back to a previous season, Kim Richards with her chicken, I lost it. I heard the angels sing. You're going to cut back to old school Kim, and I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was cracking up. It was so good. Did you see, by the way, Zero percent a Brandy Glanville fan. If I never saw her on my TV again, I would be thrilled. But she was on chat room tonight and they asked her about Kim and she said that they're not talking right now, which isn't uncommon for them. But the most recent thing that happened is they had like a legitimate fight in the hot tub. She's like, I wish the cameras were there for that one. She's oh like, my God. She's like, I talk to Kyle all the time, but Kim and I haven't spoken in a while because of our hot tub fight. And Giselle like inquired about it and she was like, no, like it was an actual fight. She tried to drown me. What kind of world are we living in? I don't know. I don't know. I actually wrote this down when I was watching chat room because I wanted to remember to say it to you. You know what we always talk about? If you have zero Bravo knowledge and you just come into a conversation, that there are certain conversations that are so bizarre that you would really be like, are these people speaking another language? Yeah, I think we need to coin a term because we bring it up pretty much every week. We Well, we say it like it's, we call it, I think we call it like alien talk. Like basically, yeah, yeah like if an alien came, they'd be like, okay, these people are okay. actually matching. Okay, alien talk, what happened? Okay. <laughs> Portia Williams to Brandy Glanville. Thoughts on Sonia Morgan peeing in the driveway at the Shabbat dinner? (laughs) I lost it. I audibly laughed. I mean, what what have we gotten ourselves into here? It's so niche. It is so niche. It is the epitome of niche. Emma and Julie and I always speak about like we have these inside jokes that we just keep adding like small layers to for years and years and like we'll weave back old jokes to new jokes and it's just like literally not one other person on planet earth will understand them. And that is what happens with Bravo because it's like, okay, you know all of Portia's history. You know everything about Brandy. You know her relationship like with all these other people and things and shit that she's talked. And then you know all about Sonia and Sonia peeing and the relevance of why Sonia peeing is is interesting. And then to get Brandy Glanville's take asked by Portia Williams on a show with Giselle Bryant, like what? 
No, it's too good. It is too good. That is why I don't care where I am in the world. I meet another fellow Bravo watcher. All of a sudden, immediately we have a connection. You speak in the same language, kid. Yeah. <laughs> okay. First thing I just want to mention, this totally could have been me. And I feel like it definitely was. When everything was happening, I felt like everybody was coming in so fast. You know, Obviously, Garcelle was the first to arrive. She was talking about it with Kyle. That when there was that moment between Sutton and Garcelle when Sutton is asking Garcelle if she spoke to Erica. I completely forgot about last week's episode already because so much had happened that I forgot the last time they saw each other was at that blow up. So like, aside from everything else and walking into this dinner had so many other awkward layers because everybody knew it was about to be an interrogation. For Garcelle's sake, I mean, you know, Erica hadn't answered her text for all we know. No, it's funny you say that because I was thinking that they were feeling like it was awkward because of what was going on and like Sutton, you know, wanting to skirt around her and not really like say hi or engage and like, oh, it's so awkward, all these things we know about her. And then when I'm like, oh shit, the Garcelle blow up just happened and this is their first time back together. So much has happened. I almost forgot about it. That's what I'm saying, which again, in another franchise, that kind of had Potomac energy in the sense that so much happens that we forget it. Whereas like Mm -hmm. if we were in New York or another franchise, you know, we would have been still hung up on that. But there wasn't even a confessional, unless I'm wrong, where the producers were asking Garcelle, you know, how do you feel seeing Erica? Because just so much shit was flying. Right. It it is crazy. I was so focused on the last thing that we saw was this sit down at Sutton's when really this was all linked from the La Quinta trip. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when they sit down, obviously Kyle gives a toast. And when Dorit, I guess intentionally or unintentionally, really gives Sutton the best lead in line, even though Sutton would have gotten to it eventually, when she says, you must be so blindsided by everything that comes out. And Sutton's response is, but are you truly blindsided or do you have some sort of, it seems like, and that's when everything happens. Yeah. I think Kyle sort of in an in an accidental way, almost alienated Erica and made it like a more big deal that she was there when she's like, you know, thank you everyone for coming, especially you, Erica, which I think she had 1 million percent good intentions. And I'm not just saying that to defend Kyle. I really, really do. But if I was Erica sitting in those shoes, I'd be like, oh, please. Like, you know, you're so embarrassed almost like you're, it's the elephant in the room and spotlight is already on you. And I feel like that almost push the door open a little bit more to be like, okay, we can like discuss it. Everyone here knows what's going on. And that sort of led into this slippery slope of really opening the doors and sort of no one holding back in the slightest, almost as if she wasn't there. Now that's not to say they were saying the same things they said at Sutton's, but they were definitely going there. Oh, they were definitely going there. And to be clear, I think Sutton would have gone there regardless because she she had had to. Yeah. I mean, she hits Erica with a, you know, seems like you could have gotten information before it hits the press. She denies that. She comes at her again. I think it was when the LA Times article came out. We all said to each other after you left, it seems like she must know this. We all read it and the timeline was confusing for me. And this is the most important line of the episode, in my opinion, or one of, when Erica says, I'm not answering anyone's questions. And Dorit responds, no one is looking to pry. And Garcelle immediately to Dorit, that's not what you said the other night. My jaw. (laughs) My jaw just dropped again. That line was so unbelievably important because it touched on the most crucial thing. Sutton kept the exact same energy in Dorit's house that she had at this dinner, okay? And to her credit, even though I think the entire internet disagrees with her, Rinna did the same. Rinna defended Erica at Dorit's house when Erica wasn't there just as much as she did at this dinner. Or I guess you could say she kept quiet the same amount. 
Whereas Dorit, these are two fucking different people. And for somebody who has not shown up this entire season, which we haven't complained about because she's looked so glamorous and we've been loving her outfits regardless. It's like, you're going to show up and have two personalities in one episode. What's going on here? Right. Regardless of who you agree with or who you think is right or is taking the right side, you have to at least applaud the consistency because then at least they're being true to their feelings and showing the same sides and also that they're not afraid of her. And Dorit was totally, completely flip-flopping. Even Kyle, I think, was overall consistent. You know, She wants to be soft and it's her house and she doesn't want Erica to feel uncomfortable. But at the same time, she wasn't chiming in in the way Dorit and Rinna were of being like, no, we're there for you. We'd never want to question you. And the other reason that Garcelle's statement was so powerful was this is the first time that they're bringing up this whole like Saturday night thing. So on top of it, it's leaving Erica being like, what do you mean what she said on Saturday night? Like what happened on Saturday night? What is going on? And what are these conversations that I wasn't privy to? Right. And I want to get to that in a second. The fact that, you know, Erica almost felt like they were on this committee, but One thing that I personally felt, and I don't know if you agree with this or if you guys agree with this, maybe I'm reaching. I don't know if I am though. I think to be clear, Garcelle would have said that regardless because Dorit's hypocrisy was just so obvious. However, if we go back to last week for a second in La Quinta, when Garcelle was at her lowest and she was the most upset and she was like genuinely really sad about what had just gone down, Dorit was the one that kept prying at her. Dorit was the one that kept saying, you know, well, if she says she doesn't want to bring it up and Garcelle had to keep coming back at her of like, I didn't know that. And so it's not that I think she was doing it out of revenge because to be clear, I think she would have done it regardless. However, I think she probably still had a little bit of a bad taste in her mouth. And in my opinion, completely understandably and justifiably so for the way that Dorit handled her last week when she was, you know, down. And so it came out in this moment. Maybe I'm wrong, but that was my feeling. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I came to the realization recently that I was just like desperately in need of a closet clean out because you know when you're getting ready and you just can't find anything, you have so many things that you don't even wear that you can't find the stuff that you do wear and it's just like a chaotic and unenjoyable process. That was me. I'm still, to be honest with you, in the process of cleaning out. But one of the biggest game changers for me in this process has been finding just like high quality essentials that I can mix and match with anything so that I can have less things, but the things that I have, I can wear with a lot. And I've told you guys about them before, but I think that Quince is one of the best at this in terms of just finding the high quality, affordable pieces. And they have a lot of really great sweaters. I love their Mongolian cashmere oversized boyfriend cardigans. I just find them to be so comfortable. I have them in a bunch of colors. They also have washable silk tops, which are amazing, like really easy, comfortable, high quality throw-ons that you can wear for so many different occasions. And the best part is all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. So The way that it works is by partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and then passes that savings on to us, which is kind of like best case scenario for all involved. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash CBC for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash CBC to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash CBC. After that moment of silence, when Dorit says, let me finish, Sutton interjects with the, the reason I wanted to talk to everyone was to see where we all stood on this. And that's when Erica comes back with, so it's like a committee. Do we support Erica or do we not? 
Okay, I have a very niche example, and you'll know what I'm talking about, and I think other people, maybe if you can't exactly relate, you'll kind of get it. (laughs) When you're in a sorority, Mm -hmm. there's an exec board. And when there's an election for who's going to be on the new exec board, the old exec board sort of meets and kind of says, who do we think is the right one for the job? Like, who are you guys going to advocate for? Who do we think we want on our team or to take over our positions? But the rest of the house isn't supposed to know that. So when you're at the elections and you are chiming in with your opinions, you can't say we because you don't want people to really know that the board had kind of had a discussion behind their back and sort of made these decisions. You know, you have to come as your own individual people. And that's what I felt was happening here was Sutton kept using we, we, and it sort of felt like a gang up and a pre-decided sort of like attack or a way that they were deciding that they wanted to go about this or deciding how they had felt about it as a collective group. When in reality, like I said before, these women are on a very, very large scale of where they're feeling and also the level that they're comfortable supporting Erica with. Right. And it's interesting because, by the way, I fully get your example. And yes, I, I, the reason that I found that to be interesting was because, you know, one could use the we term if they are operating cowardly in the sense of like, you know what, I don't want to take all the blame for this. So I'm dragging everyone down. That was not the case. Sutton really was absolutely leading the charge. And at moments she said, I wholeheartedly, I just think that her use of we was a little bit too casual for some of the other women's likings. For example, Rinna cuts her off, which I knew was coming after the third we, I knew Rinna was about to chime in because when Rinna says, you know, hold on, I don't think it's we. And that's kind of when this becomes less of a the group versus Erica and more like individuals who is more in support of her in her eyes kind of thing. Don't you think? Yes. And also when you think about it from Erica's perspective, we saw what happened at Dorit's and we saw the way the conversation went down and how everyone felt about it. This is the very first that she's hearing about it. So I did feel like Dorit really was positioning it in a way that was throwing Sutton under the bus, which it didn't need to be. Sutton called the meeting yes with her own agenda and her own feelings on the situation, but it wasn't necessarily out of cruel intentions. Like it wasn't a a mean meeting of like, let's take down Erica. You know, we want nothing to do with her and I want to get you all on board. It was a like, okay, let's take a temperature check. We need to have a conversation without Erica in the room. So it's not uncomfortable. And as much as we may disagree about what's going on or how we feel about it, we are all sort of in the same boat. But so for Dorit to position this whole meeting as, well, Sutton felt like she wanted to get us together. And then on top of it, Sutton's position being so strong. And from Erica's, where Erica's sitting, I get why she felt like, okay, Sutton is really out for blood here, which when you really do watch it go down, wasn't really how I felt. Totally. And especially because what we just spoke about earlier was secretly, the rest of them were happy for Sutton's presence there because it gave them permission. And if I want to be totally honest, I know this isn't necessarily the sole focus here, but this was like one of Dorit's worst performances ever. And I say that as somebody who really likes Dorit, don't you think? Oh my God. Yes. It was really pissing me off. It was really pissing me off. It's like, I understand that you want to keep a certain level of softness when the person that is being discussed is in the room. And I think an example of somebody who did that well was both Garcelle and Kyle. Garcelle obviously came at her a little bit harder, but still, I thought it was very appropriate. And I thought that Kyle also, you know, she didn't lie to Erica, but also she understood that it was her house. It was her dinner. She was trying to make her comfortable. Whereas Dorit, 
you can't go that hard at your house and then completely backtrack as if it never happened. It was like she really, in the face of Erica, got afraid, which is fine if you weren't going to lead the charge before. You can't be Sutton's right hand and then just drop her the second you get into the fire. That's not fair either. Yeah. And I don't think she was necessarily Sutton's right hand, but you're she's exonerating herself from the situation. She hosted the meeting at her own house. And you're right. If she had maybe been more silent or been like, you know, I really don't know where I stand when they had the meeting, fine. Maybe her her attitude at this dinner wouldn't have pissed us off so much. It was it was just thing after thing of first throwing Sutton under the bus being so suck upy to Erica and completely changing your tune like so hard from what we just saw you saying. And on top of all of that, it annoyed me even more because I felt like at the meeting at her house, I really felt everything she was saying was so powerful and very true and made a ton of sense. Now, maybe it wasn't the best from Erica's perspective, you know, maybe it was a little bit harsh on her and maybe it was things that she would not want to say to Erica's face. Fine. You don't have to have the same attitude that Sutton has of whatever I say here, I'll say to her face. I get that. It's scary and it's uncomfortable. However, everything she said made so much sense and was a really good position for her to have and is how I truly believe she feels. But she completely melted as soon as Erica was there because I think her relationship, I think also having Rina and Erica sitting across the table from you can be intimidating given their history and given just who they are as people. You don't all of a sudden want to feel like, oh, now I'm like, you know, it's either Team Sutton and Garcelle or it's Rina and Erica. Who's my loyalty to? And all of your morals and the things you've been thinking about can easily slip away. I get how it happens, but it was very frustrating. Yes. Okay. I'm glad you said that because that was my point of it as well, like I didn't expect her to be the exact same. I appreciated Sutton's level of consistency. However, that's rare. Among most franchises, among most groups and real life situations, it's rare that people would be the exact same way when the person's there. And Sutton basically was. So I applaud it, but I'm not going to make that the standard. I think it was phenomenal and I think we can all celebrate it. But I understand that there's a little bit of a difference. So I wasn't expecting Dorit to go that hard, but what she was trying to do is rewrite history. Right. You were the one... Listen, at the end of the day, that meeting was at your house and second to Sutton, you were the most vocal. So let's not try to pretend like Saturday night wasn't what it was because there's nothing to apologize for. And you don't need to pick a quote position. You don't need to be so against Erica and really questioning her or, you know, I believe her, I love her, like Rinna style, like innocent until proven guilty. There was a way like Kyle did, I think, to sort of really just pick and choose how she was going to react to each question or not say anything at all. You don't need, we don't need your opinion on everything. This isn't necessarily about you. It's just a conversation, but you're allowed to say, I agree with certain things or I have questions about certain things, but I love you as a friend. And, you know, maybe we're being a little hard guys. Like this is too much. Like she could have played both sides in a more elegant way that didn't have to like lean so far left or so far right. I think her issue, and I do not mean to compare the two because they're completely different, but even at that dinner at Kyle's house in La Quinta, when they were having the conversation around race and Dorit really, as we said last week, just it got pretty cringy with some of the examples that she was giving and kind of her her testament there. It was a similar situation of like, you don't always have to fill the space. It's okay to not have something additive to say. That's okay. Nobody is going to fault you for just listening. And I think that when she gets uncomfortable, 
she doesn't consider that as an option. I'm not going to say it's to the extent of Ramona, obviously. I was just going to say that. It's not Ramona, but it's definitely – there are similarities. Yeah, no. Listen, Dory can sit in her discomfort more successfully than Ramona can. However – she she didn't need to be as uh, vocal, in my opinion, as she was. And so, you know what? I have to say, watching it back, I think she would agree. This was not her best performance. I agree. And that's the difference. I, I, don't, I can't even believe we're comparing her to Ramona. It's just like the most fresh thing is she knows what she does right or wrong. She does have a much deeper understanding and a little bit self-awareness like factors there. The problem is I think she does feel like in the moment what she's saying is additive and right and that she does have these experiences. I'm not saying it all comes down to like she doesn't know how to say it or she gets her words tied up, but I think a lot of times she gets so overwhelmed at the moment and like everyone has pointed out, she's so long-winded that she can't get her point across clearly and maybe can't communicate really well exactly what she's thinking and it just – it comes out in the totally wrong way. And I think looking back, if I was her, I would get why Sutton felt the way she did and why everyone felt the way they did. Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, Dorit is a lot of things. She's not like a shark. You know, that's not her strength. She's not going to come with these hard hitting one-liners. Obviously, we know that her other strength is not being concise. And sometimes in an effort to, you know, really pad your words, it just comes across like a complete over-explanation and lacking so much clarity and honestly, so much authenticity. And that's what was upsetting. Totally. Okay. I know we're bouncing all over the place, but there's literally just no other way to do this episode, don't you think? It was crazy. I know. I know. Okay. So when they talk about Sutton consulting her lawyer and Garcelle says, again, keeping everybody honest, which I appreciated because this is why Garcelle's not a hypocrite. She was happy to keep everyone else honest. And then also she was fully honest with her own feelings. It wasn't like, here, let me feed you to the sharks and I have nothing to do with it. She was being just as transparent as she wanted everyone else to be. And she said, I don't think she's the only one that did that. And so when Erica kind of surveys the table of who got a legal opinion, that's when Dorit says she talked to PK. That's when Kyle says she talked to Faye's husband. And to what we were saying earlier, even though we think they are completely justified in doing that, for 30 seconds to put yourself in Erica's shoes, I can understand how kind of jarring that must be for a moment. Yes. And I don't even think it necessarily has to do with like feeling like, oh my God, all my friends are going against me. I think it was more of a reality check for Erica of like, oh shit, like everybody is talking about this and everyone is concerned about it and everyone is just as confused about it as the next. Like this is really what is going on. And my friends feel the need to consult lawyers to understand what is even going on in my life right now. And the reason I appreciated Garcelle for this, yes, holding herself and everyone else accountable, but it was also trying to steer this conversation away from being uh, like, you know, shit on Sutton and Erica, you should be so mad at Sutton because that was the tone that Dorit had set. And I think Garcelle saw it going down that path and realized like, wait a minute, this is not what happened. And not only do I love Sutton, it could have been anyone, I think. She just wanted to stand up for the truth of really what was going on, what, and give a better idea of the tone of what the conversation really looked like that we saw. Yes. And I agree because I really do think, I understand that her and Sutton are close. I think that if anybody was in that situation where they were undeservingly getting this type of heat that was just not fair, I think Garcelle, one thing that we've seen about her is she really values fairness. And so that's definitely something that she was going to hone in on. But all that being said, even though I think she would have done it across the board, if I'm Sutton, after that dinner, I'm surveying my friendships. I'm going to say Garcelle is a real one. Yes. And I think just on the point of Garcelle, 
I think she cares a lot about the truth. And I think given the topic that we're talking about here, the whole theme here is what is the truth and like really important truths to tell. So I feel like they all feel this sort of responsibility to be as honest as possible or keep it as the conversation as honest as possible because the topic that they're talking about is uh, you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's literally about uncovering the truth and staying truthful. So they can't create this whole mess of being gossipy and untruthful and like t- twisting things and turning things when the base of the issue is what is going on and did Erica know and what is the truth about our friend? Yes, yes. And one thing that you said earlier that I wanted to touch on when you were saying, you know, for Erica, it's also this realization of like, holy shit, my friends are, you know, consulting things about me. I think it's also like, no longer is this strictly observational. No longer are they just watching this from a distance. They are now having to wonder if there's any involvement on their behalf. And that, even if there was none and there never would be, having the knowledge that your friends are thinking about it in that way, I think must change something in your mind of, just your evaluation of the situation. Right. And like almost like she's sort of untouchable and there's this bubble around her. She it feels like she almost is like a contagious disease. Like, right. you know what I'm saying? Like all of a sudden she feels like she's infected and anywhere she goes and now she's just going to be like so paranoid about what people are saying and thinking. And I think as hurtful as it probably was, her friends being honest about it gave her a lot of perspective on really, okay, what is going on here and what are people thinking about me outside of my own head? Right. And also this is important because when Kyle says to Sutton, you know, be a little bit more clear, you were a little bit afraid of your reputation, which I thought was fair to say because Sutton led with that. And she said she would say that in front of Erica. And Rinna says to Sutton, I'm not sure that you believe Erica wasn't involved, to which she replies, the $20 million elephant in the room, $20 million went into your LLC. Okay. Wait, I just want to say quickly, my first thought was that I guess it was Rinna and sort of everyone's, as viewers, maybe our first reaction is like, okay, everyone, everyone's baseline is we believe Erica and then we're going to find out the story. And I think that's how Rinna was going into it and sort of expected how everyone else would be going into it too. Like, okay, we believe Erica, she's innocent, we love our friend. And then as things unfolded, you know, they'd kind of see what happened. But I think it was shocking to Rinna especially that that wasn't everyone's point A. Everyone didn't come into this in the same way she did of like, of course, that's our friend. She didn't do it. She's, you know, she's innocent. Like, how could we ever think she did that? Everyone came in, it's sort of different perspectives and not the way that she was looking at it. Oh, she was absolutely having that realization. And by the way, that's fair. You know, not you don't have to have that expectation that you believe her just because somebody else does. And and also to Garcelle's point, because I think she actually said it because she got frustrated by the narrative that like the longer you know her, that means the more you support her. But on that same thread of thinking, like just because you've known her for longer doesn't mean that you need to believe her. I think naturally you probably would because you've built that trust, but like you could have known her for as long as Rinna and still had questions going in. It's not just because Sutton met her most recently, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I agree with you. You don't need to have that feeling at all that She's innocent. But I think Rinna was really caught off guard. Like, wait a minute, you're all not just going to immediately say, of course, we believe you. We love you. You know, you're our friend. Why wouldn't we believe you? She was sort of shocked at how everyone was coming in from different points of view. Yeah. This is my question to you and obviously to you guys as well. I We literally just watched this episode, so I'm still processing it in real time. But when 
after the LLC thing goes down, right? Mm-hmm. And Kyle then asks, you know, like the obvious question is, did you know any of this? And Erica says, what do you think? Whatever, that whole thing. Sutton's response is, I have several LLCs. It seems like you would notice or question that, meaning the $20 million coming in. And Erica's response to that is that she was kept away from the books. My question to you is, isn't there a difference here and like an important distinction between knowing that the money came in and then knowing that the source of the money was from these innocent victims? Because I think there's a difference between I had no idea of any of it or yes, I knew that the money was coming in, but 20 million in the scheme of things wasn't so much. And I didn't think anything of it because that was standard operating procedure. Like to me, and maybe I'm just looking at this wrong. To me, there's levels of knowledge and I don't feel like it was it was clear enough because to me, my interpretation was Erica saying she had no idea that there was that $20 million infusion, which is a lot harder of a story to believe than, yes, I saw the 20 million come in, but how do you expect me to think that that's coming from all these illegal ventures? You know what I mean? Right. Like my husband was a multimillionaire, you know, why he maybe was putting in money to support my businesses or he was funding her, her Erica Jane lifestyle. So why would it be so off for him to, for her to think that he was dropping that much money? I mean, granted, I think that's way more budget than maybe she was really dealing with, and it is a huge fucking amount of money. But you're right. There's so many layers to this because there's the layer of like Erica knew nothing about the finances, which is very believable. And I think that that happens all the time, but it doesn't mean it's illegal. It's just like a terrible fucking marriage and power dynamic. But that has nothing to do with the money that was stolen from the victim's of this plane crash and their families. So you're right. I, I, the logistics are so detailed and like, there's so many layers to this that we obviously as not lawyers don't understand, but I was surprised, not surprised, but a little bit caught off guard by Erica's overall tone and reaction to all of this. And I mean, listen, she's very monotone. She's very cold. She's very, sad and tired and already feels over it but know that but knows that this is just the beginning and her energy was so draining and you could tell she really didn't want to be answering these questions of course but i thought her answers were pretty um like disappointing and also so unsatisfying right and like okay you know if if we want to try to give her the benefit of the doubt for a second. It's like, how much can she actually say? As we know, the less she says, the better, obviously. But in general, I think we wanted more and would hope to get more and we just weren't getting that. But like, I was trying when I was watching this, because obviously I so appreciated where Sutton was coming from. But that one thing of the distinction between just the money and then the source of the money Last week, we had Sutton saying that she didn't know until after her divorce that she was partial in a few you know, minor league baseball teams or something like that. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's like there has to be some grace given for Erica's lack of knowledge. It's just what did that lack of knowledge consist of? Was it just a numbers game or was it deeper than that? Well, I guess the question is, was Erica or everyone else, even like Sutton, when you read the article, were they aware that there was no money and then all of a sudden there was these tens of millions of dollars that then are going into funds? Like, was there a step in between? That is what I don't know. But from what it looks like, these it just feels like two separate issues. But the way that Erica is responding to it, it doesn't feel like two separate issues. I And by the way, I don't – my temperature check, my weekly temperature check on Erica is – I am believing her less and less and this episode really made me feel like she she just like 
is in such a bad place and you can tell that there's a lot of like darkness and anger in her head and I do think that she knew more than these women or anybody are letting on but you have to admit there is definitely truth in Tom handled the books. Tom was the one. She never saw a check. She never saw paperwork. She just went out, did her thing, spent her money, and it all just sort of magically happened behind the scenes. I believe that. I believe he controlled the purse strings 101%. But that doesn't mean – that A doesn't equal B. Right. Right. Exactly. There are two separate layers here. Yes. Yes. That that is true. I mean – But wait. But does that – to me, that just – is helping her argument of saying, I, you know, I had no idea. I turned my cheek. It was never up to me. I wasn't allowed to even know anything. I wasn't allowed in my LLC. To me, that is like her ultimate sort of defense when in a, in a court is like, you know, Tom was insistent, maybe to a point of like financial abuse that I did not see or touch or hear about anything that had to do with money. Does that exonerate her? Oh, well. Obviously, I can't answer that question. I have absolutely no idea because I think when <laughs> wait, John- you're not Judge Judy. <laughs> Hold on, we have to remove that element because we're never gonna get we're never gonna get to the actual like legal decision. I only care about in the court of Kyle's dinner table. That's what I'm concerned about right now. Mm-hmm. I think Erica's general emotion and vibe around this whole thing, which it's not necessarily faulting her because I don't know if she could help it, just was definitely not aiding in anybody trying to believe her. Even if you went into it wanting to believe her so deeply, she appeared strangely apathetic. Who knows? She could be on a Xanax right now because this whole thing is so overwhelming. But we just were seeking some emotion. And so then when Garcelle finally brings up the victims and I was like, hey, obviously not the same thing, but my sister was in something kind of similar. And like, that's where my head is at. And if Tom really did these things, he's a total asshole. And that's when Erica, for the first time ever, confronts that the real victims here are the victims, which I know three weeks ago, we said, this is a show about Erica. We're on Real Houses of Beverly Hills. She's going to talk about her journey and how it's impacting her. And I still stand by that. I get that she hasn't focused on that. However, the fact that it took this many episodes for her to even bring it up, and then when she brings it up to seem so apathetic and unemotional, that's what I think everybody is like, what the fuck is going on here? I wanted so badly when Garcelle said, you know, then fuck Tom, Erica to just say back to her, then fuck Tom. Because that would have said everything you needed to know of like, she is angry at a man that she was once married to for doing this. Put everything else aside. Everything. Forget the money. Forget what happened to you. Forget, you know, maybe that you'll be dragged into this. We pretty much know for sure in some capacity that he screwed over people who are the least deserving of being screwed over. We pretty much know that for sure. I know she can't admit it, but she could say, if this is true and he took money from this, then you know what? He is a bad fucking guy. And we just, you were just not, even even now that she's just acknowledging it, it's still not enough for me. Well, right. Because Garcelle started her entire sentence by saying, if this stuff is true, then fuck yeah. Tom. Yeah. She, that was her caveat. Well, Erica could also say, you know, if anyone could do something like this, you know, that is like really sad, really upsetting. It's awful. It's reason to be angry. Like she doesn't have to necessarily say my ex-husband, Tom Girardi, you know, what a fucking terrible guy. But I just want a little more empathy. I get also though from her position, she is drowning and it must be hard to see it from anyone else's perspective. But 
I do think we need more because that is the number one concern here. And it only, even if she doesn't care, which she fucking should, it would only make her look better. And I just felt like she needed to be on Garcelle's level, if not even more enraged by this. Well, that's exactly what it is. Realistically, what she says at this dinner table, unless she really, you know, reveals something that is super confidential and super telling and incriminating, her general affect isn't impacting anything in a court of law. However, you know, the Bravo audience is its own kind of jury here. And so helping her case in that way by just being overly compassionate and empathetic, even if it was faked, would have helped. Again, I don't think she was focused on that in the moment. It's just like, it's so bad. It's This is so fucking bad. It's really fucking bad. And we're watching it go down. All I'll say is I leave these episodes feeling very fucking satisfied. And then also the preview for what's coming up next, next week and also in the rest of the season, we're getting more. Like we are getting every single thing that we want and it's so crazy. One of the most underrated lines of the episode was when Kyle said, I feel bad there's all these questions and stuff and Kathy responds. It's good practice. Amazing. Kathy Hilton just never fucking disappoints. Ever. She's a woman of few words, but when she speaks, it really is heard. When that camera pans to her and you can see that she's about to say something, my my heart just flutters a little. I know. So this is the conversation we were talking about earlier between Sutton and Dorit. When Sutton, you know, basically confronts her, which she wasn't going to do in the table, but like, you don't think you threw me under the bus a little? And Dorit, again, it's like, even here, you have an opportunity. Erica's no longer present. Just say to her, listen, I cracked under pressure. I thought I was going to go in harsher than I could, but sitting across the table from her, I just couldn't do it. I would have respected that a million times more. Right. Then being like, I don't think I threw you under the bus. Like, because that, you know, the number one worst thing that we hate to see in a housewife is just a complete lack of self-awareness. And I don't think that we typically say that about Dorit, but to completely deny your behavior that was so evident and so undeniable, you know, you start to wonder, is this just a blatant lie or is it really indicative of just a deep lack of self-awareness? It was also funny, the parallels of at, we're sitting at the table and Sutton sort of leading this conversation and Erica saying, oh, so you all got together. And I felt like she's being, being ganged up on basically and that there was prior conversations and sort of a plan made of what was going to go down. And then after, Sutton is feeling like that happened to her. So it's like everyone feels like they're being ganged up on in a certain way when that didn't really happen. It was more especially with Sutton's case. Like, it's not like they all said, okay, let's all, you know, flip-flop behind her back. It was really only Dorit who flip-flopped hard. Everyone else sort of stayed silent, but Dorit was like really making sure that Sutton was the quote forefront figure of this whole thing and that none of it fell onto her. Yeah. And by the way, Sutton was the front figure, but Dorit kept that same energy. (laughs) Dorit kept the same. Yes. Yes. It just... I mean, this is another point I can't wait to bring up at the reunion and also an episode that I'm glad Erica will get to see because in real life, you only get to hear and see what's in front of you. And if you had only heard and seen what went down at this dinner, like I said earlier, the way it was presented to her was this like, we're staging a coup and we all think you're a bad person. And Sutton is the one who brought this up, scheduled the meeting, brought us all together and, you know broke down the LA Times article point by point with her lawyer present. And from where Erica's sitting, that's what it felt like, when in reality, that's not what happened at all. And she'll get to see what her friends were really saying and thinking. Not that they're necessarily bad, it's just their true thoughts. 
Right. And if I was her, the only person I would be not upset with, because I think she can understand you know, everybody's position, but I'm saying the only person that I would feel kind of lied to by would be Dorit because Brandon kept the same energy, Sutton, everybody, you know, kept the same energy. Even those, for example, Crystal, out of this entire group, this episode, she probably said the least. Obviously she knows Erica the least, Kathy Hilton as well, but uh, goes to our point earlier, going into this, Crystal and Kathy also said the least. So it made sense. It was like, you don't have to say a lot and you don't have to say a little, just try to stay a little bit consistent. Yes. And in the moment, it might be scary, but knowing Erica, she will respect Sutton more for being truthful and honest and sticking to her guns versus Dorit, who was saying all these things behind her back, but was too timid and scared to say it to her face. And as uncomfortable as they are and as little as she agrees with Sutton, I think as a character trait, she'll appreciate that much more. Yeah, I think so as well, if she has the ability to look at this clearly and obviously isn't so, you know. Right. Yeah. I think the audience will see that definitely if Erica doesn't. Oh, uh, trust me. The audience already does. I took one quick scroll of Twitter and everybody is on the same page. Also, by the way, I don't know if Erica expects everybody to operate in the way that Rinna is. No, I don't think – I don't think she does either. That was also – that was the most surprising to me. I know we covered it already was that Rinna was like, wait, you're not all starting off, you know, from just assuming she's our friend. She can never do this and we're going to – just go with that story. Like, I think that was an interesting thing to me was how she was viewing the situation. Yes. That was definitely a moment for her where I think she kind of had to shift her thinking of like, how is this all going to go down? Because the way that I had anticipated is not necessarily the reality. And so like, where does my place fall now? I think Rena's attitude is she feels like she has nothing to lose. She really loves Erica as her friend. And she doesn't care if down the line she looks stupid. I I think that those things combined are sort of fueling where she stands and kind of her willingness to just let it sort of ride out like a wave. She also, by the way, confronted or acknowledged the Denise thing in her confessional. Like, oh yeah, that's what everybody has been talking about. But she, at the time of filming, really did acknowledge that. And so, like, again. You can dislike Rinna so deeply, at least with this particular situation, she is being consistent because what she's saying in her confessional and what she's saying behind Erica's back is exactly the same energy she's keeping around Erica. And so it's not consistent with Denise. We've discussed a million times. That personally doesn't bother us as much as it bothers some other people, but it is within the situation. So even if you don't agree, I think she came out more on top of this episode than Dorit did, at least in my opinion. At least she was self-aware and she understands how the parallels would be drawn between the two situations. And she's willing to say, maybe I'm a little hypocritical, but this is how I'm viewing it and this is the story I'm sticking to. Yeah, exactly. I don't know about you guys, but I am one of those people where every year on Daylight Savings, having that extra hour of light in the evening just like completely transforms my mood. I feel like I am not me when it gets dark at 4 p.m. And obviously the flip side of that is that first morning after springing forward can be rough. So I want to tell you about something that can make it so much easier, so much more enjoyable. It's called Hatch. And Hatch can help you choose sleep, prioritize healthy habits, and then also make the time change transition seamless and enjoyable. So the Hatch Restore helps you build sleep habits that make your unwind and wake routines simple and enjoyable. So a phone-free bedtime, no matter what time of year it is, which again, is really a habit I'm trying to change this year, and this has very much helped it. And then with the Hatch Plus subscription, you can access the latest routine-building features like Cue to Unwind, which signals you that it's time for bed, and Pillow Talk, which is kind of like your favorite shows or socials without the screen to keep you up. 
for me, that's like such a wonderful feature because it helps me unwind, but not in a way that feels unnatural. It's kind of like the benefit I get from scrolling my phone without scrolling my phone. And then waking up in the morning is just so much more peaceful. Like I don't think it's good to wake up to that jarring alarm sound. So to have kind of an easy wake up, I've just really enjoyed my morning so much more. Right now, Hatch is offering our listeners $20 off your purchase of the Hatchery store and free shipping at hatch.co slash cbc. Visit hatch.co slash cbc to get $20 off and free shipping. Hatch.co slash cbc. You know, last week we were kind of just getting warmed up to what was about to happen in Potomac. Like they're in this beautiful house. We're getting accustomed to that. And the groundwork is kind of being laid. We see Karen and Giselle get into it a little bit, but it was at the very end. So you know the episode's going to be good when the starting point is already like at a 10. Let me tell you, Giselle, the seed planter, was really here to plant her garden this week. Yeah, she (laughs) was botanist as fuck. Yeah, botanist as fuck. (laughs) I mean, we start out again with the, I want Ray to live, I want Ray to pay his bills, which was, I mean, one of the most, (laughs) I don't even know what to say about that line, really. Quotable, amazing. I like when Wendy comes in here kind of as the voice of reason, because at this moment in the episode, I wouldn't say she necessarily has an allegiance to either Karen or Giselle, but she basically says, listen, based on what Giselle said, I don't think that that's wishing death on someone. And Karen still, I mean, it's unfortunate. I hate when this happens because I hate when it's a housewife that you like, you respect, you're typically on the same page as. However, they are fighting a battle that you simply cannot get behind because it is so deeply illogical. And that's what's going on here. Like Giselle does a lot of shit. Wishing death on Ray in response to a deeply misogynistic comment is not one of them. She also didn't wish death on him. Like at this point, I can't tell if I almost wish that she did so that this was a valid argument because when you go back, she was making another one of her snarky comments, nothing more or less than we ever see her made, especially that we've seen her make in the past four years since then. She was basically saying like, he'll be he'll be in the ground before he ever sees this, basically saying like, in her own snarky way, when pigs fly, my face will be not pretty. Like that was what she was alluding to. And it's like for Karen to bring this up, it's so over nothing. I wish that they were fighting about something with more substance so that I cared more, or I wish they just weren't fighting at all. Obviously, we will get into this later on, but I think one of the reasons that we were so hooked to the conversation at dinner, both between Robin, Karen, Giselle, and Wendy, was because that was substantive. You know, that we really had a lot to unpack there. Whereas this, Karen just is mad at Giselle because she's mad at Giselle and she doesn't really like her. And she's just picking at random at this point. Yes, it, it's so true. And that was like, okay, you know what? I can get involved in this argument. I, I just want to see Karen at the reunion watch the clip. Like, I want her to watch it and I want her to tell us in her own words why it bothers her so much because you can tell she just kind of went back to something that maybe bothered her a while ago and is resurfacing it just to bring up drama and just to make Giselle look like a bad person. Exactly. Which, and I like Giselle, but in this episode, she did a good enough job herself. Completely. But just this fight is not worth anybody's time. No. Okay. One quick switch to Ashley before we get into more of what's going on in Virginia it is unbelievable how Michael Darby will take any opportunity to bring up Juan. It is a literal skill. And not only bring up Juan, he's like so weirdly jealous about 
the marriage, the same energy that he had at that party that he eventually ended up like having a minor breakdown at, he still holds some of that. And this like whole narrative that they'll never get married and I know it for sure and I know Juan better and I've heard him say things, that has not passed. Oh, it has not passed. It's just that we haven't seen it because luckily we haven't gotten that much camera time of him. However, we're getting a little bit here. Not that I welcome it. However, if we are going to get it, I guess I would want him to talk about this because it's relatively interesting. Totally. Okay. It's important that we have this Giselle and Robin private conversation before everything goes down because this is when they're going to be the most honest. You know, it's one thing when they're actually talking to Wendy how they're going to frame it, but we can call this the equivalent of like the Sutton meeting at Dorit's, you know, when the person's not there and you're talking to your best friend, like you're just going to lay it all out on the table. And that's what they were doing here. And also make sure, I think mostly from Giselle's end, to make sure Robin's on the same page as her. And I do think Robin has a backbone and I think she has a lot of her own really unique thoughts and individual thoughts and she voices them. Like, I don't think she's, like Giselle's little sidekick by any means or a puppet. However, I do think a lot of the fuel is given by Giselle and sort of like the ideas and kind of egging on Robin, it definitely goes on. And in this scene, you can kind of feel like they've definitely spoken about this before this conversation. So this is maybe like the second conversation they've had about it. And they're both making sure that they're on the same page. And also this fake concern that something's different and wrong and why is she so different and there's got to be something wrong with her. And, you know, we're just concerned about our friend. You are concerned about her willingness to show her body and anything else you say is going to be received less authentically, in my opinion. I just had such a bad taste in my mouth throughout this whole thing. Giselle started with that point and her her whole it was just so transparent what she was trying to do. Maybe not to Wendy because I guess the Eddie cheating article rumors haven't been brought up yet necessarily, but this whole thing and then her and Robin ping-ponging back and forth, I was so happy when Candace and really Karen especially stood up for her and were saying, what are you trying to do here? And not for nothing, not that this would make it any more or less valid, but Giselle is like, is no saint. And who is she to comment on another woman's body? You know, she's, she's friends with her. She's doing the same thing. She's dressing the same kind of way. Like, what is that her business? If she had legitimate concerns, Wendy is not doing anything. And if she really had concerns, it would be 100% from the quote, personality change standpoint. And maybe as a point, she could throw in, you know, and we've seen you you do a 180 changing your appearance. Do you feel insecure about something? But to lead with this whole idea of her body and sexy, and I've, you know, almost scolding her that I've seen your body more this month than I've seen since I've known you was just so, so wrong and really just was not, not it. It just wasn't the flex that she thought it was. I mean, she's making no. she's making an observation that is factual. Yes, Wendy is showing a lot more skin this season than she has previously, but that's where it ends. That is just a strict observation and there doesn't need to be so much judgment associated with it. And like, let's pause until we get into the actual dinner when they're talking about it because I, I really felt as much as a lot of what Wendy does, I don't fully agree with in the sense of like, as we talked about, you know, when they were at the Pamper party for Ashley, like that whole Zen Wen thing is bullshit. But I could tell this hurt her way deeper than 
maybe anything else that has ever been brought up on the show. And to watch a woman squirm in that way at the hands of people that are her friends or supposedly her friends made me really upset. It actually made me really sad. It made me sad too. Okay, moving on to the dinner. And we can start off with what you have listed here, which is the Candace conversation with Chris. To me, you know, yeah, the actual content we know, we've seen this, we saw our conversation with her mom last week. To me, the more important element here is that it's just now another bullet that we have on the list of things that Giselle was so enthused to bring up. She's enthused anytime. It just doesn't have to do with her and it's gossip. And it just is part of her personality. And sometimes it's great. I mean, full transparency. As a viewer, it's pretty much always great. It creates conflict. It's gossipy. It's why we watch Housewives. But then when you put yourself in the shoes of women who are at dinner with her or have to be around her all the time, not only is it very irritating and really just so not women supporting women vibes, when you think about how little she gives, it's even more just a bad, bad look. And I got to tell you, the MVP, I think, of this episode was has got to be Escala. I, I loved Karen, and I think Karen was incredible from beginning to end here. Everything we saw, and we'll get into like her really warm, mushy mommy moment with Wendy, but Escala bringing that up as her observation as a new member of the group and what she's seen so far was just – it was perfect. It was perfect. And also, you know, and I know this has been pointed out, Escala is coming in under the guise of being, quote, Robin's friend. So that added, you know, another point in my book for her of like, okay, you know what? You are willing to say the truth, even if it goes against your, quote, alliance. Because by the way, this is the same person that put you in the cottage. You know what I mean? Right, right. No, I, I, I agree. And I know we're kind of going out of order here. We can get into the Robin stuff in a second. But Giselle's response to that was such bullshit. Like bullshit. It was such a deflection. Oh my God. You are not allowed to completely absolve yourself from any sort of a conversation because of Karen's presence when you have spent the entire night interrogating every single person at that table about what is going on in like their emotional state of their lives. Like it, it's it's frustrating because Giselle is open about the fact that she's not open. She doesn't hide that. You know, even when we saw last week's episode when her daughter didn't pass the driving test, she acknowledges the fact that she sometimes doesn't know how to be emotional in that way and how to be vulnerable in that way. She's very aware of that side of herself. So you would think that somebody that knows that they're like that and knows that they are perceived like that would maybe tread a little bit lightly when it comes to confronting or interrogating others about something that has nothing to do with her, yet she completely does not and takes the opposite approach. Right. And I just, it was almost like, what a fucking lame excuse. Like, And you know that if someone else gave that excuse, if Karen gave that excuse or anyone, she would say, oh, wow, that's a lame excuse. You know how she would react if anyone but her said something like that about, I'm not good, I'm not comfortable talking about it with a troll like that at the table. You know, we'll talk about it one-on-one. And Candace is like, I want to be there for that conversation. Right, and she's like, I want to see the day. No, you wouldn't talk about it right. one-on-one. Okay, what happens when Karen goes to fucking Surrey? Then what's your excuse? Right, right, exactly. And transitioning into the Robin conversation because it was almost like Giselle wanted to go around the table and talk about everyone. And I sometimes think she knows Robin can handle her and maybe won't ever get really mad at her unless it's something worthy. And also, I think she wants 
to make sure that she covers everybody so it doesn't look like she's picking favorites. And that just because Robin is her buddy and her sidekick, she's sort of left out and, you know, she's untouchable when it comes to her wrath. Like she wanted to make sure that she went around the table and she got to Robin too to show that nobody is safe and she just wants to, quote, call it like she sees it and be honest and be tough love with everybody. I 1 million percent think that that is exactly what was going on. That in combination with the fact that the more everybody else talks about their stuff, the less she has to. However, I don't give a shit. Your agenda to not seem biased and to also deflect from your problems is not an excuse to handle your friend in front of a group with such a lack of compassion. And by the way, I understand the argument of when you are closest to someone, you are allowed to treat them with tough love. I get it. Okay. I I really do understand that. And if she was having this conversation, you know, with Robin alone in private, maybe it would have been received a little bit differently. However, in my opinion, the way she went about this in general was so fundamentally flawed because all of a sudden Juan's needs were on the pedestal and Robin's mental health and any potential underlying issues that may be causing her to sleep in and causing all the things that she is not necessarily proud of happening were completely ignored. And I understand you want to come at your friend from, you know, a little bit of a tough love. You want to give them a little bit of a reality check. But to me, this was so not it. I was like, I was like, you are really off here. You don't even realize how off you are. The number one element is this sense of public embarrassment and shaming. It's like, yes, you're at a dinner with all your close girlfriends, but to bring it up as sort of this group topic and dive in and just go after her and say, you know, your man's not going to want someone. Why are you doing this? Get up. Like, what are you dropping the ball with your kids? Robin did handle it like a champ, but she shouldn't have had to. No. And here's the thing. I don't think that Robin had any problem talking about it openly. I don't feel like Giselle went to a place that Robin didn't want to go in the sense of Robin didn't have to volunteer the information about her son failing math or whatever class, you know, all of those things that are, that were mentioned. I think that Robin was willing to be transparent. It was like you said, the shame and the guilting. And what really rubbed me the wrong way was the fact that Juan's happiness was being prioritized the most. And listen, I agree that it's important that you and your partner are both happy. Of course, I want them both to feel like they live in a house where they're both mutually supported. Like, it's not like I'm saying that, you know, Juan's needs should be thrown out the curb. However, it's not like Robin is doing this intentionally. She's clearly in a hard place herself that, you know, and as a result of that, Juan is suffering a little bit. However, like, this is when Giselle's lack of emotional intelligence was really on full display. And what I was missing so much in this moment was like, can't you pull out some of how you are with a pregnant Ashley? Like that is the type of depth and, and uh, compassion and like emotional intelligence that we need you to have in this moment. Absolutely. And this to me just spoke everything about Robin's character because if someone else maybe had been on the receiving end, they wouldn't have handled it like this. And this only went the way it did because of how open and sort of mild-mannered and level-headed Robin is all the time. And most people would not have taken that as well or not been offended or embarrassed or felt attacked by what Giselle was saying and the way that she was going about it. 
Exactly. And then when the other women are kind of trying to offset what Giselle is doing and support Robin, and when Wendy says, you know, I'm right where you are, I feel overwhelmed, kind of just wanting to give her the sense of like, you are not alone. Don't feel isolated. There's nothing bad or wrong with you. We have all been there. Escala is talking about her own experience with depression. Again, Giselle takes that as the opportunity to then go directly after Wendy. She says, you're in a whole new space and a whole new something. I can't put my finger on it. There's a difference. And again, Giselle comes at it with, I've seen more of your body parts in the last month than since I've known you. Yeah. Her whole entry into this convo was so weird and really, I think, caught Wendy so off guard. And I don't blame her. It was like, what? How did we even get here? And then Wendy going on about how she feels she can wear all the hats as a professor and that she doesn't need to. I was very interested hearing everyone's opinions around the table. I do think in general, it is an very interesting topic of discussion, but it shouldn't be centered around Wendy and sort of as a judgment of her. I mean, everything that we're talking about here, in my opinion, can be represented or summed up in the one line when Giselle says, you know, this is different than the Wendy I met, Professor Wendy, Substance Wendy. I agree with Wendy. That is really fucking triggering because all of a sudden you are saying that my sexuality and my education cannot coexist and one, you know, diminishes the other. And that is where we were saying earlier, she just came into this so wrong. The second you started that, nothing that you are going to say is going to land or resonate with Wendy. And immediately she's going to be completely in disbelief that anything you're coming from is coming from a place of actual genuine care because it just was so wrapped in unavoidable judgment. Totally. And also to make Wendy feel like all of her accomplishments and the person she was all of a sudden are gone just because of the way she's dressing in Giselle's eyes. Like, I think she probably was like, is that what everyone is thinking about me? You know, why does one negate the other? And it's clear that Wendy's done a lot of soul searching and thinking about this. I mean, when she has her party to reveal her boob job and all the tweaks that she did, she's very clear. She wanted to do something for herself. She feels like these professors have to be put in a box. And if she's a correspondent, she can't be this. And she's wanted to say, you know what? I want to be everything and I want to be happy. And I want to change this stereotype and show that you don't have to be one specific thing. So I think for Giselle to bring it up, something that she's been thinking about a lot was like, wait a minute, you're really going to go there and in front of everybody and pretend it's out of a place of genuine concern? I don't think so. Right. And also, listen, let's be really honest in this conversation. Wendy has been saying this both to the group and in her confessionals for the entire season, Real and to Eddie, really pushing this narrative of like, you know what? I can be sexy and I can also be a professor. I can wear all these hats. And yes, Do I think that she believes it? Absolutely. However, do I think part of the reason she's saying it so much is because she needs to say it out loud so that she can fully internalize it herself? Yes. I don't think she believes it to the level that she wants to. I think she's still getting on that journey of really becoming so comfortable with being able to do both because I agree, she can do it all. And that's the most beautiful and special thing. However, I think she feels so put in a box for so long that to really get to the place that she wants to, she has to really just talk the talk and walk to walk and almost speak it into existence. So in her process of doing so, as she is going through the steps to actively say it out loud and to really you know, push that thought into the universe, to have somebody stop that, that halts your progress in a way that is way deeper than being offended at somebody else saying something. That hit her internally. And that's why this was so hard to watch. Because 
she wasn't fully sold herself, even though she was putting that out there. And so for somebody to question her in that way, I think hit her way deeper than she was even willing to say at the table. Yep. I, I, that's so true. It's exactly what I was thinking. And also you saw it later when she breaks down with Karen. At first I was like, wow, she's of course handling herself so well, so strong. She did a great job, but I knew that that had to cut deep. And I'm honestly glad that we got to see her playing both sides. And that also Giselle didn't get to see how deeply it affected her. Well, at the table, when Karen says, Wendy, don't defend your choice to do something for yourself. We should be able to do that among this table of girlfriends. Absolutely right. And like you said, we get more into that in their conversation separately. But also, Wendy makes that point about, you know, when they were filming, she was two months postpartum. And that is not even being mentioned until she brings it into the conversation. So, like, on top of how wrong the angle that Giselle was coming from was, it was like she didn't, she completely failed to consider that. Also, no one's saying maybe Wendy and Giselle were acquaintances before the show. I don't know their history, but let's say not. They've known each other for one year, and I'm pretty sure 99% of the time that they hung out is when they're filming. So how is Giselle going to judge her after knowing her for one year and only seeing her two months postpartum during filming her first season of Housewives? To How is she authority to judge her? Like, they've no history. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, you're still getting to know her. You can't say you're worried about how how much she's changed. And by the way, if there were really things that were actually concerning her, it would not have gone down in this way. Well, when she says, you know, you don't seem happy that there's something internal going on that you're trying to mask, if that's going to be your argument, okay, let's use points to back that up. Like, at Ashley's pamper party, you're preaching Zen Wen and you are so clearly not Zen Wen. Let's use issues of substance. Let's not use her tits in that Versace shirt because that doesn't fly. Like it's, it's not like Giselle is making something up that doesn't exist. There has clearly been a change. To not acknowledge that would just be off, right? Like obviously we're not stupid. We can recognize that this is a woman who's presenting herself in a completely different way. However, to, to weaponize that and to make it seem as though there, she can't just be doing it for herself. There has to be a deeply rooted reason, which as we see in the preview for next week, Giselle then kind of conflates with potential reasoning because of the cheating stuff. Like it's just, it's so, it's so, it so undermines what I feel like we as women are trying to do like in advancing ourselves in general. Let me put it like this. It felt personal. <laughs> yeah, it felt personal. Well, I was going to say the fucking elephant in the room that we're not even addressing is All of this is just Giselle trying to plant the seed of the Eddie cheating shit and say, something seems wrong with you. Are you sure nothing's wrong? What's going on? And as a way to get to the Eddie cheating rumors and have that be brought up because she loves gossip. And also I think it's a little bit of a taste of her own medicine and somebody else, you know, the switch has been flipped and she's not in the hot seat anymore with Jamal. And all of this is just a terribly executed disguise of pretending like she's really worried while making digs about her appearance and this whole new attitude and also making it known that she feels something's wrong and that she thinks that these cheating rumors could be true. Yes. It was just so the wrong way to handle it. Because I, by the way, I agree with Giselle in the sense that like what Wendy is feeling internally and what she's portraying are not necessarily the same thing. But the way that Giselle handled it and her points of quote evidence were so flawed. Yes. Very. I want to talk about Wendy and Karen sit down because, 
you know, these are really the times when you understand why Karen is regarded as such an important and phenomenal and like game-changing presence because the way that she served as this like support and real you know you're right it was like a, a very maternal energy kind of mother figure to Wendy was something that could not have been achieved by any of the other women on this cast i don't know why it made me very emotional and i think because maybe we haven't seen this side of Karen this season yet but she just had such a warm uplifting, clear, just warm, nice energy. And I loved every second of it. And it is such a good side of Karen that we don't get to see because I think a lot of times Giselle brings out the worst in her. And also a lot of times she's really trying to like prove something, to prove her marriage is great, to prove she's the grand dame, to prove her businesses are doing well. When really we just love her because she's funny and she has this side to her that the, a lot of the women need. And by the way, she loves to do it. We always talk about how her number one thing was in a Vicky Gumbleson way, you know, you got to kiss the ring and you're coming into my group and I'll show you the ropes and I'll teach you how to be this Potomac woman and how to be in our friend group. So I think in a way she really loves to have these moments because she wants to help Wendy and she likes her, but also she gets to feel like, you know what? I have wisdom and I've been there before, especially when it comes to Giselle. Yes. And let me be very clear in my opinion on this. I 1000% think that every single thing Karen said to Wendy was accurate and was coming from her heart. I really do believe that. I think that she was hurting to see Wendy hurting and she wanted to help her feel better. However, it's not lost on me that she did get additional enjoyment over the fact that the power of her words also made Giselle look worse. Like it's, I'm not saying she had an ulterior motive because I think she was pretty open about her motive, but I saw a tweet that basically said something like, you know, there were elements to this that were strategic. And I guess my point is like, yeah, but that's not such a hidden thing. Of course there's elements of this that are strategic. Of course it's in Karen's best interest to show Wendy and the audience that Giselle is the quote snake that she wants to paint her as. So I I really do believe no matter who said this to Wendy, Karen would have had this side to her where she just wants to make her feel better. It only made it sweeter and maybe made her speech a little bit better because the enemy here was Giselle. Yeah. I think her first thought is like, oh great, now someone else hates Giselle too and gets it, you know, gets the wrath of what I've been feeling all these years. But I think none of her sitting down with Wendy felt like, okay, I want to make myself look good. I really think she felt that from her heart. Me too. I thought the best line was what she said, if you're dressing for her, go change your fucking clothes. Because that hit on what we were talking about the night before where I think the moment of the entire episode that made me the most sad was when Wendy made that kind of like, you know, offhand comment of like, oh, you guys are going to make me cover up. Yes, it was casual in nature, but it was so representative of how she was feeling of like, exposed in a way. And I know she was physically exposed, but I feel like she just felt so deeply exposed in such like a unwelcomed way. And so Karen basically just wanted to ensure that she wasn't doing that as a protection mechanism. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I appreciated that. So much. I loved it. I just want you guys to know this one thing I'm about to say sums up our feelings on this week's episode, Isabel texted me because she had watched it before me and she was like, okay, so we're just not going to talk New York this week, right? (laughs) That's how I feel. I just feel like I can't in good faith give this a spot on our podcast. Like I'm really 
I'm done. I'm tapped out. I have senioritis. Yeah, it's <laughs> – this was a absolute shit show. This was maybe the worst we've ever seen Ramona. This was terrible on Sonia. You know, the most exciting moment from this episode was obviously seeing the fact that Emily may have found her biological father and potential siblings. But other than that, I mean, this was mortifying. And honestly, for Sonia and Ramona. For, yes. I mean, I want them to just turn this into that show, Finding Your Roots, where they like help celebrities track their genealogy. Mm -hmm. I just want to watch that of Ebony because this, I'm so upset that we went back to the Shabbat dinner and it only got worse and more offensive and just truly heartbreaking. Ramona is so bad. And then the fact that she is trying to point out and express concern for how out of touch Sonia is and that Sonia is a train wreck and we, you know, we, I can't stop watching, but I know it's going to a bad place and she has no idea what she's saying. And she's, she has no respect for people and their property. I'm like, someone get this woman a mirror. Yeah. Listen, Sonia was no saint here. Like she handled herself terribly and her blow up at Ramona was absolutely mortifying for her as well. Yes, I get it. But I mean, remote, like I kept thinking, okay, we obviously are watching this show with all of the background knowledge of these women. We know how they operate. So we were horrified, but also like we got it. What about for the people that were in the room with them? That literally this is their first experience with Ramona and Sonia and any of these women. And this was going on at the dinner. Like what? No, I, it's so bad. It is really – I'm sure they felt like they were aliens dropped on earth and how disrespectful when they're all telling their stories. I mean, I just can't. And Sonia's only saving grace – Ramona and Sonia, again, unacceptable behavior, probably the worst we've ever seen them. However, Sonia's message of like, you know, Ramona needs to do the work. She has to feel other people's pain. Like at least the crazy shit coming out of her mouth I can agree with. Whereas Ramona – is so out of touch and uncomfortable and cringy and just tone deaf in every sense of the word. And we see it twice in this whole episode at these lunches and dinners that she's invited to. I mean, we got to like, she can't leave the house. It's just like basic social skills. Like, and again, I say all of this under the caveat of like, but she was born for reality TV and I get it. It's not lost on me. I understand like nobody else would act like this. It's just at a certain point, how do you not how do you not recognize what you're doing? It's like I know we shouldn't be surprised. I get it. We've been with her for 13 seasons. Why are we surprised? It's not that I'm necessarily surprised. It's just that when the subject matter is so deep and it's not, you know, stupid superficial bullshit when this woman is talking about almost losing her life when giving birth and then also the lack of medical attention she received because of racial discrimination, like that just can't be about you. Like you don't have to say everything. You don't have to say something every time someone else speaks. I I don't understand how she doesn't know that. And like you were saying about, you know, she's a great housewife, 13 years. When they played that montage of basically Ramona being unfiltered when she says that's the one thing she wants to change about herself, it made me realize, yes, she's always been this way. She's always been unfiltered. She's always said shit that really made us like gasp and she'd had to answer at the reunion. How could you say something like that? But it's a, it's a new level. I don't know if it's that she's completely given up on caring about the show, if she's gotten so out of touch with reality, or 
that she's just losing her marbles or a mixture of all of the above, but it is getting worse where in the beginning, you know, she it was it was her shtick. It was funny. She had diarrhea of the mouth and it just kind of happened. But it's to the point where it's not funny anymore. Right. It's not funny anymore. That's what I'm saying. When the subject matter is so deep, this act no longer flies. And it's I just oh my God, this is like a warning. This is this is what happens when you don't deal with your shit earlier on because you yep. just then put it on everyone else. I mean God, it's exhausting. I, I really, and also by the way, like I love Ebony. I really, really like her when she was on the show. I, I mean, we were obsessed with her. Like I have nothing but good things to say about Ebony. However, when they're at the Fortune Society dinner, what is this like random thing where her and Ramona have this like bond? What are they, what are they talking about? Why is Ebony pretending? Like who is she trying to impress or like prove a point to and I, I have never agreed with Luann so much like this whole episode I, she really crazily enough had the best grip on reality like okay Ebony and Sonia obviously they are so different yes. but I got kindred it spirits, kindred, kindred fucking fucking spirits spirits. yes I get it I'm on your page like I feel that I was so in you and Ramona like no. what every interaction has been not only problematic but also like anxiety inducing and the way she's treating your friends, you're at your friend's house for her Shabbat and, you know, Ramona's basically trashing her table, going in the kitchen, leaving early. Like, that's who you're going to say, yeah, we're kindred spirit. You know, we really get each other. And also being so disrespectful to your other friends that are at the dinner. And then again, to the other people you're at lunch with. And again, when she's at your apartment, like never having one good interaction. And you're going to say, yeah, you know, we really get each other. I don't know if she's just trying to feed into Ramona and like, not gaslight her, but make her feel like better and get on her good side. But it was so bizarre. And it also gave Ramona like the excuse to be like, yeah, you don't get it. You know, you're just, you don't have the depth that we have. And it's like, you are literally adding fuel to her fire. Make it stop. Listen, we have not been kind to Luann this season necessarily, but if I was Luann, I literally would have been like momentarily pissed at Ebony that I would have turned to her and been like, were you just experiencing the same thing that I was? Because I was mortified on your behalf for your friends. And now you are giving this bitch fuel. Yeah, no, it's just, you don't, you don't want to be associated with it. And it's just bad. It's really, it's really bad. bad. It's just, yeah. Oh God. I mean, I just, I really I, need it to be over. Yeah. Let's just. But it's fun to be miserable together, guys. Really. It really is. Are you kidding? I'm so happy that I have you and that we have everybody listening. Like literally, thank God. I know because when I see the miserable DMs rolling in and everyone talking about what we say and also while we're watching the episode, I'm like, okay, you know what? Misery does love company. And again, our camaraderie doesn't matter what it's about. I just like it to be there. Exactly. Anything else you would like to mention about anything? I'm sure, by the way, that the second we drop this episode, like within, you know, 26 minutes, a huge bomb will drop somewhere in the world of Bravo. So it'd be weird if it didn't. Yeah, it's going to be like Harry Dubin and Sonia are like engaged or something. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of Naturally. <laughs> or like Lady Gaga is going to comment something about like, I don't know, wanting to go to Karen Huger's house. Like it's just going to be something. Lady but- Gaga is like co-hosting the Beverly Hills reunion like literally 18 minutes after we post the podcast. Oh my God. Literally? Like I just broke out into a little bit of a sweat when you said that. I know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to blue ball you over there. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm edging Isabel. 
Yeah, I mean, literally Lady Gaga and Beverly Hills reunion. You know, you just know me too well. I know what you're doing after we finish this recording. (laughs) All right, guys, it's been great. Gotta go. Love you. Okay, we love you guys so much. Holy shit, I cannot believe we get to do this. We are so lucky. We're so grateful. We're so appreciative. You're the best ever. And thank you for listening. Even when you don't agree, like it doesn't matter. We're just all in it together. Yeah, and like we always say, our opinions will probably change within the next 10 to 20 minutes and when we read the comments and the tweets. So just we love having you here for our initial conversation. And if you made it this far, you really are an incredible person. Yes. <laughs> incredible. 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 Okay, okay, we gotta go. Bye. <laughs>So I'm a big fan of transparency across all aspects of life. Like generally speaking, there's pretty much nothing I wouldn't rather be told straight up. But specifically when I'm buying something or paying for a service, I just want to know what I'm getting myself into. And oftentimes there can be so much nonsense or so much yada yada. For example, sneaky terms hidden in the fine print of contracts or bills that randomly go up without properly alerting you or budget airlines with cheap fares, but then exorbitant fees to make up for it elsewhere. And we just should not need to be dealing with this type of yada yada in our lives. And yes, you could read every single word of every single contract and that's one way of avoiding it. Or you can go with a trusted brand like Metro by T-Mobile that helps you to get ahead and not pull you back. That's right. You don't take yada yada from life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not a yada yada, which honestly gives so much peace of mind. Like, You shouldn't have to compromise for an okay option with sacrifices when you really deserve that full transparency. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide.